Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, where we talk about how writing works, how writers work, and how the best writers risk being strange. And my guest today is Natalie Cable, a dear friend and the author of many books, including uh, the book that we'd like to talk about today, The Calamity's Wake. Uh, this talk was part of a class that I was doing at the University of Winnipeg. In addition to thanking Natalie for joining myself in the class, uh, I'd like to say thank the students in the class, also the University of Winnipeg itself uh, for helping me bring Natalie to the class. Without further ado, let's get right in to the conversation with Natalie Cable. Natalie, I just want to dive like right into talking about you and your book. Okay. Um, so, again, the book that my students are studying is In Calamity's Wake, uh, your uh, uh, recent but not not your, your latest book. Um, and I'm just and, – and, of course, if people haven't read the novel, people here who are not in my class uh, haven't read the novel. Uh, the book is – uh, what you call meta-historiographic fiction in that it has, you know, its basis in uh, reality. It is fiction, but it has a, you know, a foot in reality, specifically the uh, reality of Calamity Jane, you know, this, this Western uh, mythic figure uh, who, who did live. Uh, and I'm curious uh, if you could just talk maybe a little bit about what first interested you in Calamity Jane and maybe. can it brought you to write this novel and maybe kind of what you mean exactly by yeah. meta-historiographic fiction. So um, Linda Hutchin is a Canadian um, academic. I think she's retired now. She worked at U of T and she wrote about um, post-colonialism. And she tend to talk a lot about um, kind of micro uh, genres. And so she wanted to talk about... Um, what she thought was specific to postmodern fiction in Canada. And she created a term and her term is actually um, historiographic metafiction. Um, and her idea is that uh, contemporary Canadian post-colonial literature um, or postmodern, sorry, not post-colonial. I suppose it is also post-colonial, but it's post-modern literature um, does a number of things. It both, um uh references and um you know holds up the things that it talks about while simultaneously taking apart and exploring the way that those things work and that it's highly self-referential it's highly um uh interpolated with other literatures uh and that it involves a great deal of uh, responding to uh, popular culture and where it comes from. And I thought uh, this was actually a great model for a process for producing a work. Um, and while I was doing it and looking at, and so I am talking about Calamity Jane as well, and I started looking at Calamity Jane, one of the things that really struck me is that when we're talking about the making of America and the Americas, you know, including Canada, uh, because so much of our mythology, we are also, we share, right? We share a border, we share a lot of, particularly in the West, a lot of um, geography. And, um, and in some ways, I think when you're out West, and I was living out West, 
there's a way in which um, people who live on the land might identify more closely um, with other ranchers across the border or people across the same mountain range than they would necessarily identify with nationality. And at this time, actually, in the States, um, the idea of nation is being established. And so it's the states are not all on the same uh, uh, commitment level. At the same time, um, who we're going to be in North America as settlers, not indigenous people, right, is being um, created. It's being projected. So when we talk about mythology, particularly popular mythology, it's kind of a projection of who you want to be versus it takes bits and pieces of what um, is true. And certainly the the figures of the time, Calamity Jane is a real person, uh, while Bill Hickok is a real person, but they're being fictionalized in uh, in novels, in like um, characters and newspapers, and they're being created. They're being used to create these kind of projections of who are the heroes of the Wild West? How are we different from the uh, from the motherlands, right? From the from the you know the from the Britons of the world and the Europeans of the world. Like, how are we? How are we um, rougher, tougher? How are we, right? And so, um, what I realized was that there's there are very few reliable records, but there are many, many, many fragments. And so sometimes this this person, Calamity Jane, who is a real person, um, might appear in a newspaper to be in two places at once. And this could be because uh, communities would have their own person that they called Calamity Jane. It could be, you know, somebody who drank a lot, for example. Um, it could be because um, somebody has created it whole scale. It could be a mistake. And so this woman who's in her lifetime being mythologized and not benefiting from it, right? Like she's incredibly poor, but she might buy a pack of cigarettes or find a pack of cigarettes and find a card in it, like a trading card with her own caricatured image, which is extraordinarily romantic, romanticized. And so um, at a certain point in time, people might disparage her. Uh, certainly at her death, like she was not, uh, you know, so th- so there are parts of, it's hard to tell unless you know which parts of the novel are historic, of historical record and which parts are not, because there's so much. I decided to include all of it, even the contradicting stories, because I thought that worked very well for postmodern work. And I also felt that it was worth changing around, got a little eraser here. I don't know why I'm playing with an eraser, but I am. It's because of postmodernism. That's why. <laughs> um, well, you have those three opening stories. Yeah. So there are three opening three stories. Times. Mm-hmm. So there were um, maybe, are there three or are there four? I think there's, anyway. At so, the very start, yeah. you've got the three. She was born yeah. three times or is it four? Yeah. Now, yeah. now so that you say that, no, I'm just. There's no birth certificate and people argue bitterly about her about when she was born. And it's interesting to me that they they seem to not accept her word for it, right? Which in her story is the most banal, right? 
Um, and so I thought this is really interesting. This is the way, this is a kind of mythic figure, a figure that has multiple births. So I'll include all of the births and I'll add a last one. And the last one, the one that I added is the one of the, of the kind of like the feral wolf child, which is actually a story of a, of a child out of Texas from about a hundred years earlier. Right. Um, and so when I chose to sort of play with the, uh, the concept of, historiographic metafiction, what I wanted to point out was that not only is fiction very um, curated and self-referential and um, uh, and reflects the position of the looker at any given time, so too does history. So too is history an assemblage, right? A pastiche of information that is funneled through a perspective. And when you take away um, the the illusion of a cohesive, true story, what you do still see is something that is quite, like, heartbreakingly complex and uh, and situated within, uh, you know, a kind of social and historical time in which there's a need being filled by the way we tell a story, right? We're, we're telling a story about a woman, not to help her, not because she needs it told, but because we need something. Um, and uh, to some extent, where she doesn't fit into that, she gets destroyed. And so towards the end of the book, uh, you know, the, the things that you would be surprised perhaps are true is that there was the grand funeral, Right. There was everybody suddenly saying, I was there at her deathbed. I did this. I did that. We were great friends, right? But um, in fact, she had been, she was sick on a train and um, the conductor decided to just like uh, basically leave her at a, a station that was just by itself in the middle of the, in the middle of nowhere. And basically she, you know, basically died alone. And I sent her daughter to go and get her. And like bring her back so that she would be cared for. Her bodily self would have that love at the very end. So in many ways, the book resists um, resists the idea that she can be um, properly historicized, but acknowledges that she's all that. Nevertheless she's kind of, she's deep in the culture. Like to this day, people, my, my kid is working at the um, Humane Society and there's a cat they've just named Calamity Jane, right? Like it's a, there's something, there was something so imperative about what she was meant, what she meant. um, And it's not one thing that she meant that we keep like finding a way to use it again. Right. Like, She's very much a part of the material culture. She's in every uh, every kind of technology, film, radio, television. Um, and she gets revisited over and over again as we try to figure out who we are. And as we kind of renegotiate um, our, our uh, the problems about how we've told the story of who we are and the, our failures to account for our own responsibilities like even as I revisit the book there are things that I would do differently right because I now feel like as a you know as a as a uh, white writer in Canada there are some things that that I feel like I I shouldn't have done 
And so, um, but 10 years ago, those were those, I was, I was within the context of, of, um, of media models. What, what do you think? Um, uh, it's interesting. You, you mentioned that, you know, she, here, Clement Jane's this figure who, um, kind of became a flashpoint for people to project their visions into. And, uh, you know, they kind of start writing a story over her as you, yeah. as you sort of say, and what doesn't, I like the way you put it, what doesn't kind of fit, you know, the story kind of gets destroyed. I'm curious to know, to, I always think about this with celebrities. Even today we see this, especially in She's the, one of recently, those first celebrities. Yeah. yeah and one of the first, yeah, American celebrities and uh, folk heroes or villains, uh, you know, as it were, you see this in history with different figures. You see it in politics and uh, the culture nowadays. You see it all the time. But I'm always interested in like why certain people become those flashpoints. I'm just curious if if you have any inkling or, or sense of what it is about Calamity Jane that kind of made her so attractive to people or or just fascinated people in this way. You know, she's got like a she's got an attraction repulsion quality to her. And when I was presenting the book in um, I launched it in the States in Deadwood uh, and uh, all around Deadwood, they have these giant posters of the famous figures like Wild Bill Hickok, like Poker Alice, like Calamity Jane um, everywhere. And this is part of how they like how they subsist is is by attracting people to talk about um this history it's a very small place right um and people have great pride uh in what they know um but there are other people who loathe her right like i was there was a lineup of people getting books signed and i had my poster of her up and the this woman came out to me and she said like i live here and i just want you to know that that woman was a whore and uh, which i did know actually um you know and prostitutes are like founding members of many societies if not all right like so that's that wasn't uh and she's like and i want i've been petitioning the town to take down she was a she was an alcoholic and a whore and i've been petitioning the town to take down her uh her image everywhere and i'd really like you to help me and i was like i'm sorry i can't i can't help you <laughs> like, um but you know people have their different um people don't want to be associated with her and 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 the person that she is in the in the comics is a very pretty uh and glamorous version of her that's kind of fainting into the arms of of various um various people but what they needed was the idea of the kind of woman who could match the man of um of the time she was an incredible sharpshooter um, Annie Oakley was a, was a sharpshooter as well, but she was a performer and not actually in the army. Um, so the story of this kind of cross-dressing, um, woman who could do almost anything and had lived almost every life, had been a rancher, had been, uh, had been in the army, had been kind of like at these major events and close to these major people made her very useful for telling those stories. Um, I guess and she's I kind think, of protein in that way. Yeah, too. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because when you're talking about that period, you're actually talking about a small place and a short period of time. Like the mythology is big, mm -hmm. but the period of time and the place is very small. And so the people are, encounter each other. They uh, 
they, you know, in the case of Wild Bill Hickok, he doesn't live very long when he gets to Deadwood. He's this big figure, but he's really not there for very long before he before he dies. Um, and there's just uh, there's not that many figures like her like she does draw attention to herself at the time like she's um she's in no way I think part of the book really wanted to examine the many many roles that women have like if you look in the nonfiction, they're all over the place mm-hmm. right they were business owners they were miners they were like this is a place that is that doesn't really have government at this point and if we don't have government people are just doing the jobs that need to be done Mm-hmm. Right. They're not like there's no like, oh, you can't hire so and so that person can't vote exactly. Like there's this is a, a yeah, different yeah. um so even what's here, wild about what's wild about the West is actually work. Right. Yeah, even even here you had I'm in Winnipeg right now and in Winnipeg at one point uh, the voted in or, or the area I'm from, I should say, which is in northern Ontario. At one point, there was a discussion as to where it would be. Would it be in Ontario? Would it be in Manitoba? They, everyone there ended up voting in both elections, <laughs> like yeah. until they kind of sorted it out. Like, uh, and that was you know a, a later period. Even they still yeah. hadn't figured a lot of this stuff out until you know surprisingly recently in some respects. Um, and whether or not women could or should be citizens was a very hot topic, and it wasn't sure. just a hot topic in North America, which was forming itself. But it was, well, North America, settler North America, mm-hmm. right? Like this is, I'm yeah. uh, indigenous culture had embraced, uh, you know, multiple, it meant multiple indigenous cultures have multiple roles for women, right? Already well established, but we've come over, settlers have come over from Europe. They don't want to be European, but the big question at the time, when you think about like what's going on in modern uh, uh, society is, is the woman question. Right. Like, is a woman a full citizen? Is she like an equal to a man? What does that even mean? And so Calamity Jane is both a good and a bad figure. Suffragism is happening. Right. She's she's actually very much disliked by suffragists because of her drinking. Um, But at the same time, she's a very useful character to show that this idea of women being able to do anything that a man can do. So she's kind of subversive, but she's she's a very complex person. And so she doesn't work for as as herself. She doesn't work for any of the groups that would like to mobilize her. So she really has to be kind of erased and and remade in these like fictional fictional now, characters now when you were sort of remaking her and, and and making this novel you ended up with this sort of cross-cutting structure where we're kind of focused on Miette, yeah. and then we're moving from Miette to calamity Miette's journey and mm-hmm. calamity is sort of life and history and you know all, all the sort of things involved in that um i wonder how, why and how you settled on that precise precise structure um and and the degree to which you might consider uh, Miette's story to be a picaresque. Yeah, well, I consider them both. I was trying to create a kind of helix picaresque where there were two stories that uh, would happen and that, you know, it ends with an epilogue, but it doesn't have a prologue. So there's this idea of a kind of openness at the beginning where, in theory, other people's stories can be inserted. And even though this is the story of Calamity Jane, it's also a story of the working poor. And there are these many, many, many voices, um, many of which are like um, taken actually for, or speaking words that they actually spoke. Right. Or, or, and so um, there's this 
idea of um, the old West as uh, as white male straight um, and that was never true. And it was very important for me to show that that was a curated vision of the West, right? Of a kind of heroic vision of the West. But this is post the Civil War, right? Um, 20% of cowboys were Black, uh, ranchers as well. There was a very large Chinatown in um, next only to San Francisco uh, in Deadwood. So this was never an all-white space. Obviously, it, there's a there's a large number of of um, surrounding indigenous communities, and indigenous people also working in the town and trading. And um, I remember, like at one point, reading I'd read I'd read a document about Calamity Jane, and I'd wonder why they had interpreted something a certain way. So, for example, there's this interpretation of her as a terrible scout, right? And uh, so I went and I talked to because uh, because she'd be taking these people on on route and her job would be to protect them from the terrible indigenous people. Right. The dangerous indigenous people. And they would never. And in this in this text, it said and they never encountered any. And so she was a terrible scout. And I thought, like, that's really a strange, strange read. And so I took it to um, uh, to a. Uh, um, indigenous historian and I said what is going on here like was it is it possible that you could cross this amount of space and not run into a community right because that doesn't seem right to me like we have this idea now of of like segregated pockets but they weren't segregated pockets then like we were we were pushing our way in to to places where there were people right <laughs> Uh, you didn't have to like go looking for people. There were people. And so they just don't show up very much in the movies, right? Um, because that's a story we don't like. Um, and they said, no, like if they, if they didn't encounter people, it was because of an arrangement, right? Because the indigenous people have their scouts as well. They're also protecting their people, right? So if they're crossing, if she's crossing there and, um, and, that group of people never encountered anybody that was that was just to keep everybody safe and there was and there was no so there would be no surprises and so nothing would happen to anybody there's no nothing about her being a bad scout and the other thing is that people then said okay well maybe she was actually a bad shot because she never actually killed anybody so you have this famous gunslinger who never kills anybody like what does that mean and when I thought about that, I thought, well, that that's a really interesting problem for a Western because it means that we can't have a showdown, right? So what am I going to do with that? Like, And then I thought, you know, that has to be a choice because she was a sharpshooter. And when she would perform, even in her later years, and she would travel and perform, like, can you imagine performing who you are and like the end of your own era? Like, but she would do this, but she would be performing by shooting, right? Shooting and riding. So there was never, so she had to choose. And there's plenty of records of her threatening to shoot people, right? Like she gets in lots of fights, but clearly she chooses not to shoot people, right? And I thought this is a profoundly interesting uh, character trait 
Because when you look at like while Bill Hickok shot people dead, shot his own friends dead, Buffalo Bill did, like when you look at the stories of a lot of the very famous men in the Old West and most people in the Old West, you would think you could not get through life without shooting somebody dead, right? Like there's just like, it's going off everywhere. You don't, you don't want to shoot your friend, but at some point you're probably going to shoot a friend, right? Like everybody does it. But for some reason, this person who's supposed to be a sharpshooter, who's in the army, who's at battles, never shoots a single person. So that just has to be in my to my mind, that had to be a decision. And so that was that was how I approached that in the text. And that was how I was able to make it a what I felt was an anti-violent Western. Right. That was pro-social and that was um, pro working class voices it was a really fascinating journey to to try and find out who the surrounding people were and what their voices were like because when you look for the stories of the poor you can't just find them right like they're they don't have biographies and biographers and and people doing their stuff because they're because they're you know they're not kings and queens so you often find it in places like the legal records or agricultural records or things like that. And then you find out like what people were arguing about, like the whole story about um, about how how the uh, uh, the prostitution house uh, claims that it's a cat house and how we get that expression. We get that expression from that legal case where they declare that it's that it's a house uh, full of cats. It's not a prostitution. They, these women are actually taking care of the cats. Right. So that so it's a cat house. And so it was really interesting to find out some of the deep um, cultural impact that we still have that we don't even know about, like expressions that we still have that we don't even know where they came from. Is this, you know, the nonfiction sort of status of some of these you know histories of, of the poor, of the normal class or whatever you want to call them? Uh, because it made me think of, you know, some of the oldest records we have, like just yeah. human records uh, of, you know, from Babylonia or Egypt are like ledgers accounting, like this guy owes this person five cows or whatever, yeah. you know, like, and that, and we don't think of it as literature, of course, but there is a sort of way in which it, it is sort of our literary evidence in a manner of speaking, or our evidence of the kind of like, if you go far enough back, you don't really have other records, like in, in many respects. That's right. Yeah. And I'm uh, trying to collapse the the value judgment around high and low mm-hmm. culture and say that there is a kind of irreducible value of every human life. And and where do you find it? Because then there's a kind of irreducible value of every record. Right. So a list, mm-hmm. uh, a law case like these things are as valuable um, as any like great work of art. And they tell a story or suggest a, sto- a story or, or allow for a story to be told, you know, as it were, which, as you say, kind of in some ways starts to become the process of uh, writing history it's, itself, yeah. which we then take for a record rather than being a story. Uh, I'd like to just sort of just take a second to see if other people have some questions yeah. uh, before, you know, since I know you have to go uh, in about 15 or so. Uh, does anyone else have a question they want to jump in here? I've got some other ones I can ask, but I just want to open it up for a second if anyone wants to raise their hand or just sort of unmute and leap in. Uh, otherwise, I've got a, I, I would really like 
you to talk a bit about a more abstract thing, if you can. I know it's a bit of a, sure. a older book at this point, but I really find your style fascinating. Your like line by line style uh, in general, mm-hmm. but especially in this book, you know, like because uh, I I feel it's a very dense, uh, an elegant style, but it doesn't read. Like it reads it in a very breezy manner, but yet you've got these very complicated and dense sentences. Like the one that really struck out to me when I reread this one recently was um, uh, at the very start of the book, you've got this, uh, her, her, Miette's father or, or her stepfather is dying. And you've got this sentence, the drops of oil where he's having the oil uh, uh, cross on his head. And the line is like the drops of oil reminded me of the drops of water I watched him draw on the foreheads of infants over all the years that were now being swept away. Like to me, that's a very complicated sentence, you know, Mm -hmm. where you've got like the drops of oil, you've got the image of that compared to the drops of water. You've got that kind of parallelism of the two. Uh, They've got the motion of it drawing the memory and the motion of, you know, this person is dying, but also like go back to like a, a child, a young child who's just recently been born having, the cross, same cross, sort of drawn on the forehead, but in a different material. Uh, over all the years, so then remembering all all the times he's done this, she's not just remembering having seen him seen it; she's remembering having him seen him do it multiple times. And then you've got this great ending line, like, uh, "But all that stuff has been swept is being swept away now, uh, yeah, because he's dying. All that, although those things happened, there's a sense in which the." their existence is or their memory is kind of being swept away with his death like somehow they were also a part of him and it, there's just a lot going on in a sense like that but it has a very simple and breezy kind of elegance to it and i think you could easily miss a lot of it i feel like that's a kind of a hallmark of of your style what, what i'm always impressed in with when i read your stuff is that you do that like constantly <laughs> like like a, a lot of people will get a line like that off every now and again but you're like you know doing it like line after line after line after line and i just can't yeah. imagine how much work it is it just as a as a writer myself i just look at it layering right? yeah and, and i'm just kind of curious like a million though, drafts right and, I, and yeah well i mean I, I just like to know just a bit more about how you actually approach uh, a book like this stylistically you know and, and and is there a way in which you kind of like when do you get to the point where you feel like the architecture or the structure of that story is working or how do you get those lines working? I know it's such a massive question um, and I know there's no real answer in a sense, but I wonder if like how you kind of started to develop that kind of style or if you could talk a bit about uh, why you think it was the right style. I tell my creative writing students that like, if you haven't lost faith, then you haven't gone far enough. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So when do you know it's, I don't know, like I, I go through so many uh, periods of like, uh, this is garbage. What am I doing? Like I went halfway through this book. I was ready to throw it out. Um, and then it became so precious. And then, and then there are these points where things just gel. So you just keep trying things, trying to get voices, trying scenes, trying images and trying to think about what, is the point of this moment right so how do i describe it but also what is the point of 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 this moment so in that particular sentence i i it's actually interesting because 
in Pedro Paramo, which was one of the, uh, like, I started off thinking I'm going to do a rewrite of Pedro Paramo, right? And I, I, I abandoned that fairly early on, but the early chapters, you can still definitely see it. This is going to be this homage to Pedro Paramo, which is the story of a kind of ghost story, um, an early um, uh, example of magic realism, if not like the er example of magic realism by Mexican author uh, Juan Rulfo, uh, who is credited by um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez as his influence, his major influence. And that story is about like this woman on her deathbed tells her son to go and find his notorious father. And so I thought, oh, you know, this kind of reversal, this could be really interesting. And uh, uh, and then, of course, became much it became other things as well. Right. So but there is that that layer there. Um, at the same time, there's a very striking scene. I think it's in Crap's last tape, actually, in Samuel Beckett's uh, Crap's last tape, where uh, the characters remembering the death of the, of his mother and. At the same time, he's thinking about the blinds and he's thinking about the dog next to him. And it is very minimalist, but at the same time, it creates it. It does good worlding, like it shows you what's going on around. But it also creates this sense of loss and loneliness and that 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 weird moment when you're. You're grieving and you're waiting to grieve and you're remembering things and you're feeling the loss of them and. Uh, it's also weird and not quite real yet. And um, and you feel like both the, the kind of uh, reality of, of, of how fragile we are and, and that reality of time, that time that, that goes and it's gone, right? And at the same time, it feels impossible. Like most of the time you kind of live in this consciousness and this body and you're walking around and you're in like deep denial about the fact that you're going to die, right? Everybody's going to die, right? Um, because otherwise you'd be unable to move. You'd be unable to do anything. But when someone you love is dying, you're really living with it. But you can't do anything, right? Other than be present and there's something um, excruciating and beautiful about um, the in the uh, the detail of of being present in those moments when you're just like, oh, that light is still flickering, right? Like, or oh, that like you know, there's this, these these there's a high level of specificity to your love at that moment. And there's almost a unreality. I think I, I yeah. always, it's a weird example, but I always think along these same lines of this Nick Cage film called Mandy, where, you know, he watches his wife kind of being burned alive in front of him. And then the next thing that happens, he goes into these, uh, uh, he walks in the living room. There's the TV still on and is playing a commercial for cheese goblin. And it's yeah. the stupidest thing in the world. And he, it's just, you know, he's just gone through this absolutely meaningful experience. And now it's yeah. the most meaningless experience possible, just right alongside it, you know, and, and yeah. it's, it's such an unreality and a weirdness in terms of we, when you are present in the world in that way. And it really produces this cognitive dissonance, right? Mm-hmm. Because, because most of the time you manage to kind of smooth over and sort the fact that there's these weird 
commercials in the middle of this like really compelling show mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. uh the you know and the dog is barking and like you you kind of you, you manage to put it into one whole reality but sometimes that breaks down for you and uh and so that was kind of what I was trying to get at with that and I guess in terms of my style I, it's very much a style of layering Right. And also fragments uh, along the yeah. lines that you're talking about, you kind of are moving back and forth from these stories. You've got these like historical documents and fragments and, and yeah. drawing on I a history trust, of fragments. Yeah. I want to trust the reader and let it be their book because it's not my book anymore. And uh, they will put things together differently and different sentences will mean something to them. And so I try to make room for, uh, I try to make room for the reader instead of like, over explaining what I mean or you know trying to control and make sure that they get the message and make sure that they understand all the references and um yeah I think that's my answer to that does anyone else have a question they want to jump in here before as we're kind of tying things up with uh, Natalie any other questions anyone wants to pop in to ask I can take one more if you want. Otherwise, Natalie, I'd like maybe, unless Di, do you have a question? I see you unmuting. I do? Great. Okay, great. Hi, Di. Hold, hold on a sec. Hi, Natalie. So nice to see you and hear so you. Nice to see you. Would you work? Uh, uh, do you really believe this postmodern trope that there is not such a thing as a true story? No. As the right uh, story? I mean, don't I, you I believe that? The, uh, well, I mean, I think so, when I mean, you talk about truth or the right, when you talk about truth or right, then I suppose I don't believe in the cynical version of that, right? That there's nothing real is what it implies. And I feel like you're constantly kind of, there is something that is really happening. It's just, it's, you know, it's constantly changing and you can't pin it down and explain it and have it. And explain it in all the ways that it means something to everyone, right? So, like, I can't explain Calamity Jane. I can't, like, tell you who she was. Um, but there's there is something <laughs> that is... And I don't believe that even postmodernism is really trying to take away that uh, that sense of... Of, uh, of this is real. I think what uh what Derrida was trying to do was was have people question authority and prevent another holocaust right like he's uh this post holocaust uh jewish guy trying to say like you have to question nationalism you have to question the big stories and you have to question every story you have to question your own story and why you're telling it you have to take responsibility for the impact of the way you organized facts and what and that sort of thing right like um and i think that's in the wake of the damage of a lot of nationalism and ideologies that are aimed at at uh at the bodies of people and so i think what he's really trying to i I, you know i don't know like i'm not but i feel like what i would say is that i i I would i embrace postmodernism's desire to prevent ideology from becoming a body that has power to injure other real you know real flesh and blood bodies right 
and I, and that we should question our stories and we should question why we tell them and we should listen to the perspectives of other people and understand that they that those perspectives too are are complex and real and uh and we should uh be very suspicious of modalities that try to get us to uh to act on others without out of some kind of loyalty right so I, does that answer your question that's a very beautiful answer. Thank you very much. It's eloquent and uh, it is, uh, it is uh, uh, ethically uh, committed while at the same time uh, being open to questioning. So that's lovely. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks again uh, to everyone and to you, Natalie, for this lovely chat. Uh, I'll be he, kind of here to talk to my students a bit more, uh, but I know you've got to go. Um, and I just wanted to thank you again for joining us and for writing such a wonderful book. minutes. I can answer one more question. Well, has anyone got another question they want to throw at Natalie? <laughs> or I can throw one otherwise, but. I'm, I'm first just kind of following up on what we were just talking about. I, I'm really interested in the, um, the way you kind of move towards closing the novel um, mm-hmm. because it's bound up in, in postmodern, thought uh, and deconstructionist thought and so on is this critique of teleology and this idea that things are moving towards a particular ending or direction you know yeah and so so much of as you were just sort of more eloquently saying so much of that uh, philosophy is bound up in trying to deny the uh, idea of a progression toward a thing as being some inevitable for like direction that you could then skip ahead right and and i think so much of the programs of the 20th century that were damaging programs were programs of trying to move faster you know let's get eugenics in here and and get closer to the the human evolutionary end point which of course doesn't exist and so the whole thing's doomed to failure and becomes a, a, a pro a just a massive problem of consuming and destroying bodies but like uh so there's that teleological thrust where things are you know moving in a a direction and some imagined end point of history uh starts to become a a critique what of course it provides and i think i think kafka really anticipated this stylistically in a manner and started writing these novels that even I, i think he kind of didn't realize what he's doing he was frustrating himself you know, he starts to write novels that where where the structure of the story produces a non-ending and you can't end the thing and it just is going to internally yeah. go on forever. He gets frustrated with it, uh, but it is sort of this radical, revolutionary, you know, pre-postmodern movement. You're here uh, trying to write a book <laughs> like Kafka uh, and maybe making it funnier and more entertaining in some ways, but like... You've got that same problem of like, how do you move to to an like finish the damn thing, but also have a kind of a non-ending, but still have a satisfactory climactic set of moments. I'm curious to know like how how you kind of settled on where you landed. Well, I mean, I I begin with the the father's death and I end with the mother's death. There's the closing of the Old West, and some of the underlying argument of the book is that it's actually the closing of the Old West that creates the Old West, because that's a myth. That's a mythology. It's not a real um, uh, place. So it's it's only when the Old West closes that then they can tell all these stories about like who these people were, and they could 
you know, force um, these great indigenous uh, leaders to to go on uh, to, you know, they can come off of the uh, out of prison so that they can perform their their uh, defeat at a battle on these like traveling carnivals. Right. Um, and they can, uh, you know, they can get Calamity Jane and they can get, you know, these people performing who they were and and their demise, their kind of social demise. So I had that kind of thing. At the same time, I think that I wanted it to be very cyclical, right? I wanted it to be a story. And that's why it has kind of like, it has an ending. It has the show of the ending. It has the epilogue. And the epilogue kind of folds uh, in myself and my child as kind of proxies for my actual self and child. And so uh, because you are also like not a story that you tell yourself about yourself. And so um, I was quite comfortable with the idea that this would be a story that you could keep inserting characters into, too, or that people could, you know, they could write scenes that they because when I was traveling and I was and I was performing from the book, people would tell me their stories of how their great aunt met Calamity Jane or not their great aunt, but their you know, great, great, great. And and uh, or or like that they have, uh, you know, they have a, an aunt who's a who's a rancher or, you know, so everybody had connections. Uh, and I felt like those things belong just as much in in the book. So I liked the openness of it in that way. I also feel like there's a degree to which the novel is sort of opening up a mythology or trying to reopen the mythology or reopen the making of this mythology in a way that, you know, as you kind of note, like they kind of have to close the story and kill everybody in order yeah. to have, in order to so kind they can of have, say whatever they want. Yeah. In order to kind of have like the tabula rasa or whatever you want to call it. Like it, yeah. it doesn't, what, once the story is over, it can be codified into history. Yeah. And so if you can keep it over, open or if you can kind of add to it or if you can revitalize it or just you know start to trouble it there's just the way in which now you can start to free it up a bit and take it away from the nation building a little bit and start to realize you know remember that there's a real person here and you know who knows the truth of that person's story yeah. but there, there there is this irreducible aspect that we can't pretend we all have access to yeah well i'm I had a great conversation with you. Thank you so much. And please feel yes, free to show. Thanks so I much gave, for coming. I gave Jonathan. So I was recently up in oh, Boulder, yes. went for a walk with wolves. So there's a picture of me with with wolves, but there's also a picture of my cousin Heather and um and Calamity Jane. And so uh, when I was this halfway Heather, through yeah. the novel, Calamity Jane. I was I was uh, my cousin was murdered, and uh, I just I gave up on the novel. And then one day <laughs> I was picking through research, and I saw that they looked to me to my eye shockingly similar and that was like this moment of like these people that are forgotten should not be forgotten anyway thank you so much and thank you everyone for joining uh thanks again to natalie thank you so much bye-bye